0: With the first jewel claim. Oh,
2: it's a photo of the Derby! Mr.
0: The race for the Triple Crown erupts into an epic party. The Preakness Stakes, May 18th on NBC and Peacock. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast, where I interview and have conversations with people in and out of the sport of football and try to educate you about the world I live in. So, this week, our guest, Steve Weich, highly respected NFL.com and NFL Network reporter and analyst. We will preview the National Football League training camp season, which gets underway here in the next week. And Keith Hernandez, 1979 National League Most Valuable Player, widely respected voice around Major League Baseball. He wrote a book. He wrote his memoir, partial memoir. It stops around 1980. He wrote a book called I Am Keith Hernandez. And for you Seinfeld aficionados, you might be disappointed. It's not a lot about Elaine Bennis. Anyway, let's uh, start off with three quick thoughts about my life and about the National Football League. I just began this week my new job. I work now for NBC Sports full-time. I've taken my column, which formerly at Sports Illustrated was called Monday Morning Quarterback. Now it's called Football Morning in America. And I'll write that column for the next 46 Mondays. And in those weeks, I hope that you'll follow me at NBCSports.com, read my column, and... uh, sort of follow my adventures covering the National Football League. For this, it's going to be my 35th season covering the NFL. So, uh, not a lot of emotion. I thought I might have a bunch of emotion this week when I finished up my first column, but it sort of felt like I've always done this, so it wasn't a lot different. The one thing that was a little bit different this week is I wrote this section of the column called Uh, what I've learned. And that section, I had Ben McAdoo, the former coach of the Giants, talk about what he had learned in his two years uh, as the coach of the Giants and what he learned when he sort of crashed and burned at the end of his second year. It's really kind of educational. So I'm going to be looking to do things like that and taking guys as I go on my training camp trip Starting this weekend, I'll be in Bourbon, A, Illinois, looking at the Bears first, and then I will move on from there and see about 24 teams in the next five weeks. But I, I, I hope to be able to bring you some new things in that column, and I look forward to it. Love to get your feedback. Peter King, F M I A at gmail.com. Please give me your feedback on the column or about life in general. Two NFL-related matters. Number one, I am totally fascinated with a couple of players going into training camp. One, obviously, is Andrew Luck, the Indianapolis Colts quarterback. Um, you know, I've talked to the Colts here in the last couple of weeks. They are extremely confident that Andrew Luck at the in early September is going to be absolutely fine, and he's going to play the season. Call me. Uh, I have to see it to believe it. Um, because, you know, it's been so long since we have seen Andrew Luck throw a football consistently well. And so that is going to be one thing. I'm going to see the Colts in training camp and in the third week of preseason. Uh, That's one of those things that I definitely am going to be looking out for. The second guy who I am extremely interested in watching is uh, this summer is going to be Jimmy Garoppolo. The head, the, the head coach of the 49ers is a guy by the name of Kyle Shanahan, who most of you know. And I'll talk to Steve Weich a little bit about this uh, when I have him on here in a few minutes. But one of the things uh, in thinking about Jimmy Garoppolo, you have, to, you have to look at his life. He gets drafted into the NFL by Bill Belichick, and he's on... Bill Belichick's team for three and a half years. So he gets the Belichick way pounded into him and he sits in a quarterback room for three and a half years with Tom Brady. He's taught for three and a half years every day by Josh McDaniels. Now he goes to uh, be coached by uh, Kyle Shanahan. And in my opinion, I don't think when I look back, I don't think any young quarterback that I've ever covered in my 35 years covering the game has had the length and breadth of the first four to five years in the NFL has been coached better. Now you could say, Hey, Joe Montana had Bill Walsh. Uh, you know, so you, you can, you can look at individuals. I, what I'm saying is I don't think anybody's been coached better than Jimmy Garoppolo at the quarterback position. So I'm, I'm fascinated to see what, what comes there. I think my other thing coming into training camp that really fascinates me is uh is is the 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 restocking of the NFC East and the the aim of the Philadelphia Eagles to try to repeat with Carson Wentz coming back you know I've I've told people this and I look whether Nick Foles has to play the first two or three weeks or whether Carson Wentz is ready right away, which I think is likely. Think about Carson Wentz. I mean, here's a guy who goes from North Dakota to the the NFL. And in the middle of his second year in the NFL, he looks like a top-five quarterback. But now he had a 9-12-month to serious knee injury last December. September 6, 2018. That's the opener Thursday night opener. That is one week shy of nine months from the day that uh, Carson Wentz suffered his knee injury at the LA Coliseum. So, He's already trying to beat the clock in coming back to play the opener, and I'm not saying he will or he won't. I asked Doug Peterson about it last week, the coach of the Eagles, and he said, hey, 100% a doctor's decision, and I simply can't answer it right now. I don't know. But Doug Peterson, I believe, deep down, thinks that he's probably going to have Carson Wentz for the opener. But just look at how close that's going to be. So the Eagles, I think are in pretty good position as we enter this year. But the Giants have been, I think, I don't want to say vastly improved, but I think significantly improved, especially on offense coming into this year. New left tackle Odell Beckham back, Saquon Barkley back as a, a kind of a franchise runner, they hope. But I, I I, think this division is going to be tougher than the division the Eagles faced last year. So that is going to be something to watch that I think is going to be very, very interesting. And look, we'll talk about storylines coming up in the next few weeks. My next regularly scheduled podcast will drop on August 1st, which is in two weeks. And then for the rest of the year, we will be every Wednesday dropping every week for the rest of the season. I will have some conversations from training camps around the NFL as I go on the road and I really look forward to bringing you some of the uh, some of the compelling names, compelling stories this year in the National Football League. And now my conversation with Steve Weich of the NFL Network. Happy to be joined on the podcast uh, by Steve Weich of NFL Network, NFL.com. Uh, Steve is a Highly respected peer of mine, and uh, I thought we might go through uh, some preseason issues and thoughts and stories uh, in our time this week. And Steve, thanks so much for joining me.
1: Well, Peter, thanks for having me on, and congratulations on uh, on your new journey. I'm sure everything's going to turn out to be just as fantastic as always. So just grateful to be on this podcast.
0: Thank you. And uh, yeah, things are going to go great. Uh, They always do. So I want to start with something that uh, probably is out of sight, out of mind to a lot of people, but it always sort of comes up every two or three months with everybody saying, so what do you think the future of Colin Kaepernick is? And you obviously are the person when the Colin Kaepernick story exploded a couple of years ago, you were the one who uh, basically broke the story, got him to speak, and got him to talk about some of the things that had bothered him uh, over his time in the NFL, particularly in, in in a more recent time in football. So, I just am curious about your gut feelings, Steve, uh, and, and this is probably an impossible question to answer, but do you think Colin Kaepernick will ever play pro football again?
1: Not in the NFL. Um, I, I think that's abundantly clear. We, you know, we, we look at teams last season. Houston, with his, with his injury injuries, a quarterback, had a great opportunity to bring him in and to possibly salvage what could have been a good season despite all the injuries. They just turn their nose up at him and decided... I mean, I, I watched them on a Christmas Day game. Just get completely taken. EJ Yates was a quarterback. Had had been out of the league. Hadn't played, you know, in a long time. And It was just like, okay, they're, they're just kind of cutting off their nose to spite their face. And I, you know, Houston's not the only team. I just use that as an, as an example. But no, I, I think he's done. I think. Um, teams have said, even though there are other players who've taken knees and other players who've raised fists and other players who've spoken out about some of the social injustices that Colin Kaepernick spoke about, he's, he's the example. You know, he's, he's the, the guy with the big afro who symbolizes um, a gesture that rankled ownership, that drove uh, the NFL kind of crazy about what to do. Um, some others if we bring him into our locker room despite the fact that maybe he's better than at least our backup quarterback it could be such a distraction it could be such x it could be such y such a Z. that it seems like every owner comes up with more cons in terms of signing him than pros so I think Colin Kaepernick's future is going to be uh, doing what he's doing, you know, trying to bring some, some positive uh, change uh, to a lot of underserved communities, to a lot of underserved people, but I do think that he will no longer play in the NFL. I think that ship has sailed.
0: Steve, you raised the point of he is the guy with the big Afro who rankled ownership. How much of this do you believe is racially driven?
1: I think to some degree. Um, it, you know, you have to say it is. I mean, Colin Kaepernick... Um, he's a guy who's speaking about about racial issues. He's, he's in my first conversation with him after he sat down and a the game against the Packers about this, you know, he talked about underserved communities and, and, and police shooting black people and police officers getting paid vacations while their are dead bodies in the street. And you, know, you look at the people making the decisions, um, you know, with NF, the NFL, Peter, we, we've been to NFL owners meetings. The only non white owner, Shad Khan of the Jacksonville Jaguars. Um, there are no people of color in the league office making, you know, important types of decisions. And so, you know, I think when there's people who might not be able to see the world through Colin Kaepernick's eyes or Malcolm Jenkins uh, Malcolm Jenkins's eyes and and people like that, um, sure. You know, it, it's racially driven. Again, the a lot of the optics, you know, that that you see you know, fans are, are booing players taking these, are booing players raising fists because of the gesture, not for what it means. And when Colin Kaepernick and a lot of these players are doing so many positive things, and the community are, are making these gestures for or are doing things for, speaking out, they, just, they are racial issues. They are things that are perceived by a lot of people as racial injustices. So I don't think when it comes to Colin Kaepernick or any of this whole subject of what he did and what other players have followed up on, you you have to say it's it's a racial issue.
0: The safety market when it comes to to this, obviously Eric Reed, who was uh Colin Kaepernick's uh a partner in this for for most of that season. But it's not just Eric Reed, it's Trey Boston, it's right. Tyvon Branch, it's several other players. It's it seems like a combination of Kaepernick slash depressed safety market. Do you have any theories? on why good NFL safeties, uh, as we sit here uh, on the dawn of training camp's opening, uh, are unemployed?
1: Yeah, I think right now teams are waiting. You know, you look at what happened in the draft. I think, uh, I forget the number, but the first three rounds are a lot of safeties taken. So I think a lot of the teams, we talk about the depressed safety market, they're looking at their safeties. They're looking at the safeties that they've drafted, or maybe those who've gotten picked up in a free agency, and seeing what they have. And then we'll see, you know, Trey Boston and, and those guys fall in line. I will say this: If Eric Reed doesn't find a job, then that makes no sense. I mean, the, the guy's a starting player in the NFL. Um, he's I think the two. Profile.
0: I think the two of them are Eric Reed and Trey Boston. Both of those guys are well above average. Uh, NFL yeah. players, and that's going to stink if those guys both and and look, I hate to say it, if Boston gets signed and Eric Reed doesn't, I, I'm gonna, I, I think a stink should be raised. Well, Peter, then
1: you know what's going on. I mean, then, yeah. then you absolutely know what's going on right there. I mean that look, Eric Reed, even though he, you know, he did what he did with Colin Kaepernick for the most part, he was a silent partner. Most people didn't know Eric Reed's name. Um right. you know, until until last year maybe when he started speaking out a lot, when he really kind of found his voice. Now, Eric didn't help himself this off season when he had a visit to Cincinnati and I guess they asked him what his plans well, you know, what was he going to do during the national anthem? And he went out or an agent of his or a representative of his went out and immediately spilled that publicly. Um I don't think that necessarily helped his cause. Right. At the same time, If you're trying to win football games, you know, Malcolm Jenkins has been outspoken. Chris Long was outspoken. No team was more outspoken about social issues than the Philadelphia Eagles. They won the Super Bowl. I don't hear any Eagles fans right now talking about what these guys are. I remember last year, Steve,
0: I remember last year covering a Monday night game, Washington at Philadelphia, and and the the Eagles, you know, splattered Washington all over the field, and it's 7.30 the next morning. On Tuesday morning, there were three or four Eagles players, including Jenkins and Long, on a train to Harrisburg. They were on the floor of the State House by eleven o'clock the next morning, twelve hours after they had beaten Washington in a huge Monday night football game, and they were there to talk about, uh, you know, sentencing guidelines and and, uh, and 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 you know the the sort of the draconian sentencing procedure in inner cities. And what I will never forget about that is just thinking to myself, here's guys who probably need to be in for treatment, but they view this as a more important use of their off day. And I totally understand it. And then they go on to win the Super Bowl. And that is what I mean by, I think it's possible to be active NFL citizens and great NFL players simultaneously.
1: Well, and Peter, guys, have been doing this for a long time now. Maybe they haven't been going to state legislatures and things like that um, the way that Chris Long and, and Tory Smith and so many other players have done. Doug Baldwin, I mean, maybe they haven't necessarily done that, but there have been so many other things that players have been doing for decades in this regard. Now we are in a different socio-political time, unlike any other. You know, in my lifetime, and I'm 52 years old, and there's some things because of the Kaepernick situation that have really come to the forefront in terms of blending sports and politics and and social issues. But, again, this is nothing new in terms of players donating their time and donating their effort and and trying to do things. There's much more of a focus on it right now because of the time that we're in. Um, But, again, I don't hear any Eagles fans complaining about what these guys did on the sideline or didn't do on the sideline because they handled their business on the field and they're making a positive change.
0: One other off-the-field thing I want to ask you about, it's the anthem policy in general and the fact that I think as we speak right now, Steve, uh, the Players Association, D. Smith, is back from his break. Uh, People in the NFL offices are coming back from their uh, summer breaks. And uh, I heard on Friday that as soon as midweek this week, there could be a meeting between players – and uh, ownership representatives, commissioner representatives, whether it's Roger Goodell, about trying to find a bridge between the, uh, you know, between the two sides on the anthem policy and whether the NFL would be willing to bend at all in any way. I'm wondering, is there a solution to this other than the NFLPA taking the NFL to court as they've threatened
1: to do? I think so. I mean, look, the fact that both sides are willing to, to sit down and talk goes to show that the, I think the NFL has seen some of the reaction to their decision and maybe they figure their, their ways, um, to come up with a plan. Now, I am assuming the players association is going to talk about potential fines. You know, based on the collective bargain agreement, there is a fine schedule where players can be fined for. This is not part of that. So they're probably trying to figure out ways you cannot financially take money out of guys' pockets for doing something that where, there, where there's been no previous law. You can't just all of a sudden say this is the case we're going to find guys. So maybe they're talking about a disciplinary schedule um, in, in that realm. I don't know what it's going to be, but I think the fact that they're sitting down and talking and, you know, once again being reactive but also trying to be proactive um, I think there are ways they can figure this out i don 't know what the solution would be and, and frankly peter, i think you 're with me on this i don 't know why they necessarily felt there was a need to change anything
2: well
0: i mean in my in, in, in my opinion if they de- if they definitely wanted all the players to stand, they should have done just what and you know this is this is a this is frowned upon any anytime I even mention it if if he ever mentioned what any other sport did that was smart. Uh, you know when the when this happened in the NBA with Chris Jackson uh, and he wouldn't stand for the anthem, they had a meeting and they figured out a solution. And whatever the solution is, you can't basically the relationship between D Smith and Roger Goodell is so poor that anytime a solution to a problem that involves the players, is dictated to the players, I guarantee you that unless it's, yeah, the sky is blue today, unless it's something so patently obvious, the players are going to chafe at it. And in my opinion, rightfully so. But I, I do think it's not, it's not the be all end all. I just think that the NFL should have been more open in May uh, to, and more inclusive in May than, than they were when they came to this solution.
1: Totally agree. I yep. Totally agree. It just seems like they, they came to the meeting and so said let's come up with a policy and that's that. And look, we heard Jed York say during the meeting, he was texting back and forth with Richard Sherman, who's on the executive committee of the Players Association, saying, Here's what we're talking about. And he was one owner who was at least trying to get some play, make some player outreach. But of course, as we know, that wasn't the case with the majority of the owners, as they again they, they made this decision. And I guess now in, in reaction to that, maybe they will listen to some of the reaction from the players and the association to see if they can figure anything out.
0: In our time remaining, Steve, I want to ask you, if you're a fan of the Philadelphia Eagles and you are still on a Super Bowl uh, hangover, what either gives you reason to think that they will have a good chance to repeat or what gives you reason to think that uh, they might be in a little bit of trouble?
1: Well, Great question. First off, Peter, we, we know how hard it is for teams to get back. I mean, it's just so difficult. If this is the longest season most of them have played before. The offseason gets a little shorter. Um, but here, here's where I, I think the Eagles are different than a lot of teams have been to the Super Bowl. Have you heard a whole lot of guys on their team asking for more money or new contracts? That's a or, great point. Great be, point. I need to be paid. That almost always happens to teams that win the Super Bowl. Like, OK, I helped you get here. I need to be the highest-paid pass rusher. I need to be the highest-paid corner. You haven't heard a lot of that. So it seems in, in terms of having contracts settled and, and pecking order and, and ego, you just haven't heard much of that. Plus, look, if Carson Wentz can come back at some point early in the season, I mean, we've seen him in person. This this dude is is an incredible football player. I mean, he is a special, special football player Who's going to be make, Who's going to continue to make guys better? Who's going to continue to get better himself? You know, I, I think these are reasons why you should feel optimistic. Again, but to my first point, almost all the time, with, you know, with Seattle, okay, we got a Super Bowl. I need to be the highest paid corner or running back or whatever. Those things started to surface. That just hasn't bubbled up in Philadelphia. In terms of them not getting back, it's just look, it's hard. And, and the NFC is going to be so good. I mean, the Rams are not going anywhere. Um, you know, Green Bay with Aaron Rodgers getting healthy. There's just so many teams. The Vikings are stacked. The Falcons are stacked. Um, it's, It's just hard to repeat. One little injury or one little hiccup can derail things. But I think the Eagles have a very, very good foundation in place. And at the very worst, they're going to contend to come out of the NFC.
0: Three compelling teams out in your neck of the woods in the Pacific time zone. Let's start with the Rams. I am tremendously, I'm kind of captivated by the Rams because they end last year. They sort of hit a wall in the playoff game against the Rams. They sort of look like the enormity of it got to them. You know, golf sort of was the golf of 2016. And so I I wonder, what do you think of the Rams this year?
1: I I really like them. I mean, and that's great. That's a great jumping off point, that playoff game, because it just looked like it was too big for them. Like they weren't ready. They had a home game and everything. And the Falcons came in, and the Falcons weren't great. I mean, that was just kind of an ordinary performance, and and, and they beat the Rams. There was no juice to them. So I think in adding an Akib Salib and getting an Ndamukong who doesn't have to be the alpha dog, I, I think they're going to be good. I think this defense is going to be better. And, and here's here's a player – if he stays healthy, Peter, we all need to look out for it. it is, it's going to be one of those off-season moves that no one's really paid attention to. The signed cornerback, Sam Shields, remember he missed last oh, yeah. season. There were some concussion issues. Yeah. He's a very good player at Green Bay. He is now going to be their third corner. Okay? If, he, if he's able to stay healthy, they love what he's doing.
0: Their cornerback situation so- is so interesting.
1: But they've got so much speed, and they've got so many guys who can get their hands on the ball to give that offense short field. Um, And then the Brandon Cooks, I mean, they're over the moon about his his potential and Sean McVay's offense. Just his speed and and his game-breaking ability. You know, I, I really like them, and a lot of it has to do with just the fact of Sean McVay um, and Wade Phillips. I mean, you continue to hear people who work with McVay, who face McVay, who are just like this guy's on such a different level. Like he's on that Sean Payton level in terms of scheming, but just overall in terms of galvanizing players as a unit and individually, he is on a whole different level in, in that in that communication realm. So I think I think the Rams are going to be there with all that talent and him him kind of organizing it all.
0: Let's move up the coast to the 49ers, to my other two teams that I want to talk about, the 49ers and, and Raiders. The 49ers absolutely interest me. I was in Tahoe last week at this uh, at this golf tournament, uh, the that, that celebrity golf tournament. Right. And I walked, uh, I, 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 the practice round, I walked around with Tony Romo. And we spent probably three holes talking about... Jimmy Garoppolo and the influence of Kyle Shanahan on him, and he is so bullish. He thinks Kyle Shanahan gives him a great chance to be successful. And I, I just I, I think Garoppolo is going to be one of the compelling stories of this year. Tell me about the 49ers and whether they are ready to compete toe to toe right now with the Rams to win that
1: division. It's going to be interesting. Um, I'm not going to say that they are yet just because the Rams have playmakers at all the key spots except for pass rusher yeah. um, and edge pass rusher, whereas I, I, don't, I don't know who those players are for the 49ers all right now. So, but you mentioned Kyle Shanahan, and, Peter, you and I have talked to guys from the Legion of Boom and, and things like that about facing Kyle Shanahan. I mean, I will never forget Richard Sherman coming out and saying from play one when they used to play the Falcons, that you can tell Kyle Shanahan knew how to exploit their defensive principles. And they're sitting there like, Oh my God, this guy, there are ways we can communicate that he knows about. And he's getting ready to blow us up just because of, of, of what he knows. And what's interesting, uh, NFL network this year, Jalen Ramsey, the cornerback for the Jaguars came out and everyone thought it was a shot at Jimmy Garoppolo where he said, I'm not ready to crown Jimmy Garoppolo yet because when 49ers took us apart, it was scheme related stuff. Wow. I was like, well, there you go. That's There's really interesting. Hand.
0: I, I got to. Can I watch that clip somewhere? I'd love to see it, really.
1: Yeah, and, and I want to say it was a, around a top 100 episode. Okay. Um, where Jalen Ramsey's, and I think, J, you know, Jimmy Garoppolo or someone had, there was something where Jimmy Garoppolo was rated as a top five or top 10 quarterback.
0: Did Jimmy Garoppolo make the top 100?
1: He did. Where? He did. where I want to, to say he was like top 50. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm not a big fan of
0: the top 100, but I'm a fan of that pick because I think he's going to be really good. Anyway,
1: yeah, and especially with Kyle Shanahan again, yeah, the, the schematics of it all, you know, I just I just never forget Sherman and those guys telling me how Kyle Shanahan just just schemed up, just incredible stress on them, and and I think that's what he's going to be able to do this year.
0: So let me finish now with John Gruden and. Yeah, you know, I got my skeptical hat on. I'm not. I I, I like John Gruden. I think he's. Uh, I think he was a good coach, and uh, I think he maximized what he was able to do, particularly that year in Tampa. Uh, but I'm. I call me a little bit unconvinced. I think his last five or six years there. Uh, he's right around 500, didn't win a playoff game, never really developed a quarterback, and now kind of goes to a place that has a just add water quarterback. And you would think that they're going to make that next step and be right at the top of that division. But give me your gut feeling on the Raiders.
1: I think they're boomer bust. Peter, yeah. um, I, I think it can go very well for them, or it can get very ugly. And that division, I, I think going into the season, the Chargers have got to be the team to beat because they are stacked. I mean, that addition of Derwin James, really, really If they didn't lose Hunter Henry,
0: I'd pick them to win that division. Yeah, I, I, I don't I know who like, I'm going to pick, but
1: Hunter Henry really is a like huge him. loss, yeah. Yeah, getting Mike Williams back, I think kind of, yeah, they can do some things in that passing game. But but to get back to the Raiders, you know, I spent some time with them at minicamp, and I just – they're, they're hard to figure out because, you know, they've got all that talent on the offensive line. They've got Amari Cooper. They've got Martavis Bryant. They've got Jordy Nelson. But are those guys going to hit or are those guys going to be so so? Right. You know, Marshawn Lynch is going to be fine. They're, they're, they're bullish on Doug Martin right now. But I want to, you know, I've heard all this stuff before. I want to see him when they get the pads on and if they think he can flourish. You know, because what Gruden wants to do is he wants to pound teams. They're going to use fullbacks. They're going to use H-backs and they're going to set up the play-action passing game, which would be great. For Derek Carr, but defensively, you're, you're just kind of like, okay, they got Khalil Mack. They got very high people. Yeah, I mean, Gary <laughs> Conley looks like he's the real deal if he's yeah. be healthy. I mean, he looks like he's going to be a fantastic player. But they've got so many old players. Um, you know, I love the addition of Tyre Whitehead, the linebacker from yeah. Detroit who came over. But I just they they've got proving to do. I mean, not just the coach, but some of the players, because Gruden was not thrilled with the roster when he took over the team. As you see, all the additions that he's made. So we'll see. I mean, this is this is going to be a quasi left turn for everybody who's been there, uh, coaching style and things like that. But if they hit, I mean, they could be really, really good
0: for the Raiders to make the playoffs. I think they got to be top three in the NFL in scoring. It's not impossible, but it's going to be hard for them. I just I think their defense is absolutely run of the mill uh, with one truly great player, and so we'll see. But again, I just I'm fascinated by the Gruden impact, and we'll uh, we will see a- any problems that you think with a guy who's been out so long.
1: Well, sure. I, I mean, you know, he's he's he, I think he's smart enough to adjust to some of the updates in the game, being around it and seeing how it's become such a game of space and geometry um, and matchups as opposed to just playing a certain way. I mean, there's a lot of things you can do in a West coast system. Um, but I, I just, you know, I, I don't know, Peter. I mean, it's again, just knowing his concerns about some of the roster and how he wants certain guys to play a certain way. This, this is a different era. You know, we can talk about football being a game of running, tackling and, and blocking, but the personas are different guys are on social yeah. media right after the game and right after practice. I mean, these are things He's really going to have to get a grip on, no matter how tightly he wants to run it. It's just a different world in NFL locker rooms, and I think that's where a big adjustment's going to have to come.
0: Steve Weich, NFL.com, NFL Network. Look forward to seeing you out on the training camp trail, and uh, have a great season.
1: You too, Peter. Thanks again for having me on. For the world's greatest athletes, this is the showdown we've been waiting for. There is nothing like competing on the world's biggest stage.
2: States. Unbelievable.
1: And when that stage is Paris, anything can happen.
2: I have never seen anything like this. How about that?
1: An Olympics unlike any other. What a performance. The Paris Olympics. Friday, July 26th on NBC and Peacock. There's no place like the movie theater. The smell of fresh popcorn welcomes you to a full body experience while candies and sodas compete for your attention. Pick me. Pick me hoping to join you in the best seats you've reserved on Fandango. It's where movie lovers buy tickets, pick seats, and double up on rewards points all online. All that's left is to walk in, snack up, and sit back. Visit Fandango.com or download the app today for your ticket to the movies.
0: I'm ready to go. Streaming now only on Peacock. Now my conversation with Keith Hernandez, live from City field. Back on the Peter King podcast. Very fortunate to be joined out here at City field uh, on a dog day of summer with Keith Hernandez. Uh, I really wanted to do something with Keith because he I read his book, I'm Keith Hernandez, a memoir. And for those Seinfeld aficionados, right away when you saw the title, you'll remember the I am Keith Hernandez uh, thing with Elaine Bennis in the car. But we were just talking before we started this, and, you know, Keith, I find it really interesting. You delved into some significantly important parts of your life, but not every part of your life. Why did you choose to really dive deep into things rather than to sort of do a little bit of everything in your life?
2: Well, number one, uh, Little Brown, the publisher, wanted 90,000 words, which is around 330 pages. And uh, my writer who worked with me, Mike Ponce, uh, we realized, this is a two-year project, that um, if I was going to do my entire life, it, it would be 800, 900 pages, so we kind of went to Little Brown and I said, you know, this is going to be so condensed. It's going to be a book without substance if we do my entire life. So we sold them on the on the book being my formative years. And um so it starts with my youth, obviously, my family, my brother, my my parents, little league, minor leagues and uh Actually, the title of the book, I'm Keith Hernandez, is twofold. It ends in uh, May 1st, 1980, when I finally realized that I was a major league player. It was even after my MVP year, because I had never put two years back-to-back. And I've always had bad Aprils. I had only one good April in 77. And I would had a good year and a mediocre year, and, and then the, the great year in 79. So I wanted to put back-to-back. I went into that spring training really uh, feeling a little pressure to do it and uh, and getting through April. So, I'm Keith Hernandez is the catchphrase because it's the Seinfeld line. It'll get everybody's attention. But really, it's uh, underneath. It's, I'm Keith Hernandez. I'm a major league ball, ball player. I'm a peer and belong on the same field with Pete Rose, Steve Garvey, Willie Stargell, my contemporaries.
0: You told a few stories in here that there was there was i think a banquet in Kansas City where you heard george brett make a crack about you as a hitter and you were really pissed off about it and you were always sort of fighting for that acceptance which really to me seems crazy when you think about it because i'm a big baseball fan and i only remember keith hernandez the dominant player you know but you obviously In in your struggles, and many of them, and I'm going to talk about one of them specifically, you really felt like it was a mental and physical
2: struggle for a big part of your career. Well, I think anybody in any walk of life, when they're they're trying to establish themselves, they have to have uh, self-doubt. Some have more than others, and I certainly had my demons to conquer. um, uh, My uh, self-doubt, my fragility, uh, my emotional fragility... Uh, as a young player. I was in the big leagues when I was 20 years old. So it's not like today. These guys are up here when they're 24. You know, they've been in college. I mean, I was two and a half years removed from high school. Uh, So it's a little daunting. Um, And as I said, uh, everybody, and this is interesting that you said that, is that my writer Mike Ponce said everybody knows you the finished product. Yeah, they don't know the journey there. Yeah, and my journey was not an easy one. It was a lot of times I could have thrown in the towel. Keith,
0: uh, i i find it I find a couple of things about your story really interesting. Number one, you were a huge baseball fan as a kid. So I cover the National Football League, and I, I find it amazing a lot of times when some of the biggest stars of the game have no interest in watching a football game. Like I've written extensively about Brett Favre and I would be in his house in Green Bay and he would have on the national geographic channel, golf channel, discovery channel, anything. And I once asked him about it and he goes, "I, I, I don't watch, I don't, I don't watch football. I don't have any interest in watching football. And he wasn't the only one. So were you a little bit, of an oddball when you first got to the big leagues because you tell a story about playing 127 complete games of every team in the national league in the early 70s and almost finishing a complete season and i wonder were other ball players at that time fans of baseball and fans of the game the way you were
2: well, I don't think I was – I played the Stratomatic League, and that, that, that's what you're talking about, the 71 yeah. uh, season. The New York fans and the fans back east, I wasn't a fan that knew that can rip off, uh, uh, you know, Ken Boyer in 1964. Hit, His you know, stats, yeah. I, I, I wasn't – like, here they're crazy. They, they know stats. I was not interested in that. I knew what they did, what their average was. Their, You know, if they hit home runs and their RBIs – but I, I wasn't as a rabid a fan as they are in the Northeast. Um, but I love baseball. I loved looking at the sport page every morning. And when I got up, I followed my my teams, and uh, National League in particular. And uh, I think I was, it's what I wanted to do. It's, it was my dream, and I had my, my players that I loved, and I, I followed. I mean, I grew up in the era of Hank Aaron, Eddie Matthews, and Bob Gibson, and Ken Boyer, as I mentioned, Mickey Mantle, Roger Maris. So that was a great era of baseball. You were a very
0: big person when it comes to confidence, and you write about this. And one of the things I thought was really poignant, the story you told about, uh, about Ken Boyer, your manager, coming to you, I believe, in 1979, um, you were you were slumping a little bit. And he came to you in 1979 and said, and I'm going to quote from the book, this was on an airplane, and you were on the way to Houston. And he said to you, I've seen you hit, Keith, and I know that you're something special. And I'm telling you right now that you're my first baseman. You'll be in the lineup every day, even if it costs me my job. So stop worrying. Go out there every day. Have fun. Do the things on the field I know you're capable of doing. He was finished. Boyer Pat pats me on the arm smiles and moves on and you say i'm no longer suffering i'm breathing so what was it about confidence and that can probably spread to a lot of different things in life but confidence was so huge with you as a baseball player
2: oh, i think it's it's huge with anybody uh any player and you gotta you gotta believe in in what you're doing and that you belong and, you know it, we have to overcome those those the the self doubts and uh you have to push through them and with production on the field you have to go out, no one's going to swing the bat for you uh you have to do it yourself and um that particular instance there was 1979 which was wound up being my mvp year and my batting title year where i led the major leagues in hitting at 344 uh And I got off to yet another bad start. I'd had a breakout year in 77 where I hit 291 and I hit 15 home runs and drove in 91 runs. I came back in 78, had a good first half, and then I just had a miserable second half. I wound up hitting 250, 260 for the year and drove in 50 runs. It was a terrible, terrible year. And then I came to camp. Of, uh, Boyer was hired the second half of the year in 78. Vern Rapp was fired. Kenny took over in spring training. and He had managed me two years in Tulsa where I won a batting title there. He had seen me play. So he was the right guy at the right place. And again, I got off to a terrible April in 79. I was hitting 230. I had just had a... The game prior was a game against the Pirates. I went three for four, and I had no idea I went three for four. I forgot that. But still, I went. To, we're flying to Houston, playing in the Astrodome. I never liked hitting in the Astrodome. They had a doggone good pitching staff. And Boyer to and come terrible back. terrible hitting background. A you terrible hitting it, yeah. background. Uh, and Boyer came back and said that, and it just uh, took the whole, it was, like, it was like a big weight on my shoulders got lifted from me. And uh, lo and behold, I went out and went four for four the next night against uh, Ken Forsh. And I was on my way. I never looked back. I, I hit 300 the rest of the May, April. I mean, May, June, July, and August. And obviously, I had uh, August, I hit 385. I didn't hit under 300 for the lowest I hit for a month, and I won the batting title. So things like that turn your career around. And there's a lot of that in there. There's people in my life that were there at a certain time that if they weren't there, it could have ended a whole lot differently.
0: You know, your acknowledgments and the people who you kind of call out in a good way in this book, there's Ducky Medwick. I mean, and and a bunch of people who, you know, I I would never think would have an influence on your career. For the old timers out there, tell them what Ducky Medwick did to help you along the way.
2: Well Joe uh, was the minor league uh, hitting instructor in the Cardinal chain. So he was the over he would rove around and he would come in for a 10-day homestand and uh, you know all, all the teams. Uh, what he said to me never really made a lot of sense, but he really helped me in so far. I was very temperamental. You know when you're in high school you're hitting 500 and then get and all of a sudden the big big adjustment with playing professionally is uh, learning how to play every day in minor leagues you play around 128 games at least back in my day 125 and you're not going to hit 400 uh, i didn't i hit 255 in a ball I, my first year i hit 260 in double a i didn't take off till i got to triple a and i was very temperamental uh, you know throwing dirt and throwing helmets and I wasn't a water cooler breaker but throwing bats and very 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 temperamental and Joe helped me more as far as learning how to play the game every day and not getting so emotionally wrapped up that was his value to me and I really liked him and he took a he took an interest in me I guess he had to because I was one of the top prospects yeah of course he was going to be looking at me and, uh, you know, what's he doing hitting 250 in A ball? You know, what's he doing hitting 260 in AA? In, in I'm you know sure the I, Cardinals were concerned.
0: You, you know what I really liked about the stories you tell, told, particularly about the old Cardinals? You're in a slump one day, and here comes Lou Brock to the end of the bench telling you to stop sulking. And, you know, it was cool to see bob gibson kind of get on you that you you know i'm from afar i wouldn't know bob gibson but that's what i would think that bob gibson would do he would tell you hey rook stay in your place get out of the trainer training room and things like this pete rose coming to first base and talking to you about hitting there and around the batting cage it seemed to be even though it was a real competitive time it seemed to be a time where other guys would really try to help you out
2: well, the cardinal organization was pretty much they threw you in the water, and if you either sink or swim, there wasn't a whole lot of encouragement like in today's game, where players are patted on the back, and there's all this concerned about their, uh, the, their, the how how they're feeling. You know, in our day, it was just you know you're you're in the big leagues, um, you're here for a reason. Go out there and do the job. Uh, Lou Brock was an enormous help to me. He was my mentor. Bob Gibson was the old school guy uh the most dominant personality I've ever experienced in a clubhouse uh and you know rookies were plebes, and uh he was tough boy and intimidating where Lou was uh re- was very soft spoken so it was like a good cop, bad cop, but Lou took a very good interest in me. And there's a lot of other people that came down the pike, other teams. Willie Stargell was so wonderful to me. Uh, Steve Garvey, uh, and again, you mentioned Pete Rose. So I was always a sponge. I always wanted to listen and try to pick up what I could to improve my game.
0: Even Ted Williams, the time you ran into him, yes. that, was, that was an interesting story that you told.
2: Yes, uh, I, after I'd won the MVP and the batting title, I went to Chicago and did the the biggest sports convention i was signing autographs there and and ted came up and i saw him coming and uh we had a conversation about hitting and he you know he he, you know it's ted williams i'm 25 years old and he's asking me questions about hitting and uh there's one particular question about two strike hitting and i was so nervous i didn't really (laughs) articulate it well and he said well that's that's no that's no approach in so many words um And then he realized there was people around, and he apologized to me, whispered in my ear, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to embarrass you. I just wish I could have had that conversation with him more as a veteran uh, because I would have loved to have picked his brain. But we did have a great conversation. We did agree on one thing. He asked me what's the easiest pitch to hit. And and I'm sitting there, I'm afraid I'm going to say the wrong answer. And I go, sheepishly, I go, well, the pitch up on the way. And he goes, absolutely. And he goes, Why? And I says, I don't know. I'd like to hit it. He goes, I'll tell you why. And he got up like he had a bat in his hand and he put his hands back and s- pretended to swing. And goes, It's the shortest distance from where your bat starts and your swing to the ball, a ball up and away. And it made perfect sense to me. i never thought of it that way. So that was one of the great experiences of my life, Ted. And then when the, in the, it's not in the book because we don't get past, uh, we don't get to the World Series, but when we play the Red Sox, the Mets, in 86, game three in Boston, he was sitting behind uh, the first base on-deck circle, which was the Red Sox dugout when I got up to the plate, front row. And when I got up my first at bat, I was walking. I saw him. I looked, at. Him, he looked at me, and he gave me a nod and a smile. And I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, with Keith Hernandez
0: um, here at City Field. You know, as we listen to the planes go overhead, If you're a player and you've played either at Shea Stadium or City Field, and that happens about every 50 seconds, does it ever bug you, get used to it? Is it like white noise? What's it like for you?
2: Well, there's two stories to that. I used to always step out when the planes went overhead and established that I would step out. And that was back in the day when the games weren't three hours, and you can do that. But I primarily, if a pitcher was pitching well, it was an opportunity for me to step out and break up his rhythm Rusty Staub, my dear friend who just passed away in April uh, would because he was an outfielder he always stayed in the box he said because the outfielders you can't hear the crack of the bat and you, I because I was out there in the outfield sometimes and I didn't know if the guy hit the ball solid or hit it off the end of the bat or got jammed That's so, good. so he stayed in the box and he felt that was an advantage for him wow
0: Um So, Keith, I want to ask you one question just about New York and what it's been like for you to sort of live the second half of your life here versus you you grew up in California, then played in the Midwest, won your MVP in the Midwest. What is it about New York, and you write about this in the book some, that sometimes you just end up in the strangest places with, the with you know, uh, I forget, Placido Domingo or something. Oh, yes. Yeah, I, you know, and so what is it about that and why have you grown so
2: attached to the city? Well, number one, I was very fortunate that uh, Rusty stopped said, you're going to live in the city when I came to my first spring training in 84. I was traded in the middle of 83. And I had separated from my wife for good, and that marriage was going to be ending in divorce. And Rusty said, you're single. And I said, yes, I'm not. And he goes, well, you're going to live in the city. So Rusty acclimated me to the city. And then um, I was very fortunate to meet a, one of the great PR agents, Bobby Zarum who uh, was connected with Hollywood and the Broadway, uh, uh, Lincoln Center, opera, everything. And he uh, introduced me into the cultural uh, life of New York at a very high level. And I met Placido Domingo and went backstage with him and several people, Michael Caine, Peter O'Toole, uh, Christopher Plummer, the plays that I saw, the countless plays and Openings and the, the pre post parties after an opening, and meeting all these different people from different walks of life, successful people in the arts, and that's what New York has to offer. I mean, it's it's uh, it's the cultural capital of the United States, and I was able to get in on it at a very high level, and uh, I just feel very 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 fortunate about that. It opened up my life.
0: Um, I uh. I'm going to have to close by asking you a Seinfeld question. How did you come to appear on Seinfeld in that recurring role?
2: Well, uh, the only recurring role that I had was I, I was I played myself again in the in the final episode. That episode, the boyfriend, was an hour. I was using sweeps, so it was it was not. It's shown in two parts today, but actually, it was one. Uh, Jerry's a Met fan. I was his favorite player. He conceived the uh, idea of uh, the, uh, the the idea of the uh, of the episode, and with help from Larry David, they expanded upon it. And uh, I was a year and a half, maybe retired, maybe t- on my in my second year of retirement. And uh, I don't know why they didn't call the Mets to find out where I was, but they called my agent Scott. Well, my last agent was Scott Boris, and Scott Boris called me and said, "You know, do you? I, I don't." watch any primetime? Base- did you know what the show was no i would never seen it <laughs> and i have only seen uh, a handful of episodes i'm, I'm just not a primetime watcher we play baseball we play night games yeah so when prime time's on we're playing so it just continued on into my retired life but at that point i was only a year and a half retired so i had no idea what the show was about uh he said uh, scott said it was just minimal lines we'll pay you fifteen thousand dollars fly out to la for a week. I, so I, I said, okay. And when I got my script, I said, oh, my gosh, I got all these lines. on the guest star. <laughs> so it was pretty daunting. But um, I, 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 I got through it. I memorized my but lines. But you made
0: the point that the lines oftentimes in this show are just sort of starting points.
2: Yes. Yeah. That was the, the thing that I enjoyed the most out of um, the whole week I was there with rehearsal was that there was three other writers besides Larry David and Jerry, and the principal actors all had a say and made suggestions to improve a scene. And Larry David had the ultimate say on yes or no, what uh, they would try it out and uh, all trying to make the scene better. So that, uh, I, I can't think of the proper name, but watching that, that part of it, going as, as, the, as the show evolved uh, day by day, started Monday, and how they kept tinkering and tinkering and trying to make it better and better, uh, that to me was just fascinating because there was a lot of sharp minds in there, sharp writers. And, and
0: was, was it the case that Elaine is having the thought bubble is, of, who does this guy think he is? How, was that her exact line as it was written?
2: I don't recall that. Yeah. I do not recall But that. was
0: yours? I'm Keith Hernandez. Yeah, that was in there. That, okay. was, that was
2: in there. So that's a simple <laughs> line. So um, that's all the creativity. The, the creative part of it was just f- absolutely phenomenal to watch them just uh, do what they did and all the suggestions. And they made me feel very much at ease because they knew I was nervous. And, uh, and I realized within you, my-
0: you on You did not... Especially well, at the bar, at the bar with Elaine, you're like, you're just a guy at a bar.
2: Well, I was very, I was very nervous, and it's like, you know, getting up with the bases loaded in the seventh game of the World Series with the game on the line. You know, it's all that stuff's underneath, and this was not my area of expertise. Yeah, and I remember Jerry when we did the, when we did the, uh, we had to do it in front of a live audience on Friday night. And I was all nervous because it was like, you know, you can't make a mistake. You've got to do it. And um, Jerry said, what are you nervous about? You hit in front of 50,000 people. There's only 500 up here. And I go, yeah, but I don't have to memorize lines. <laughs> so um, it was a great experience of my life. And, uh, you know, it's just something that it just fell out of the sky. I was very lucky. That show became it's iconic. Of those,
0: it's one of those things that you do, and for the rest of your life, you'll be reminded of it by doofuses like me. Yes. Yeah. And not doofuses, but
2: pe- <laughs> people will. That show was very popular. It's an iconic ep- show, and it also was an iconic uh, episode. So I feel very fortunate. Yeah.
0: By the way, what's your favorite football team?
2: Do you have one? Do you I care about always, football at all? Uh, I was always a Raider fan, and um, it was hard to root for the Raiders in the uh, last, you know, maybe 10 years ago. For Yeah. Uh, 20 years ago. It was a hard period. Uh, It was a hard team to root for, but I'm kind of glad they're coming back. I kind of like them, but I've always been partial to the Raiders. Did Did you ever meet Al? No.
0: Oh. Did you go to many games as a kid or any? Uh, they were
2: over in the Coliseum. I was on the West Bay, but I yeah. watched them all the time. Yeah. I never went to a Raider game, but uh, I certainly watched them all the time. Keith Hernandez,
0: thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. It was fun. and And I'll just say this about the book. It's really really an interesting book because it's not surfacey. You delve into a lot of your little demons and a lot of the things. I love the stories about the bus trips in A, being on the bus for 10 hours. You have the late game, the rain delayed game it's one night. Than 10
2: hours, more like 21 hours.
0: Okay, in Little Rock, I think. Yes. And you get it's rain delayed Memphis, uh, Memphis. Memphis, okay? And then you're on the bus the next day. You don't even leave till one or two in the morning. You're on the bus the next day, and you've got to play a night game, I think, in El Paso.
2: We had that, the day off, actually. It was oh, a you travel did. day because it was just 21 hours. <laughs> so they had to be up on those long travel days. That was the other division, the Western Division in the Texas League. And it was 700 miles when I woke up at dawn. And, uh, and you're probably not s- even halfway there. 700 plus. Well, I, it was a long way. I swore <laughs> I'd never play baseball. If I had to go back to the Texas League, I'd quit. Yeah.
0: Keith, listen, thanks so much, and and
2: best of luck with the book. Okay, thank you for having me.
0: Thanks to my guests, Steve Weich and Keith Hernandez. If you enjoyed these conversations, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes in my podcast series, such as my conversations with Roger Goodell, Adam Schefter, and Drew Brees. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Don't forget to leave a review while you're there. You can also hear the Peter King podcast on Sirius XM radio every Saturday morning at seven Eastern mad dog sports radio, Sirius XM channel 82. Thanks to the fine folks at cadence 13 for their production work. And I'll see you next time.